0: Hey, Mabel. Hey, Tori. Hey, playwrights. Welcome to Hey Playwright,
1: a podcast about playwriting and life. Hey, Mabel. Hey, Tori.
0: We've had a few weeks where we have been focusing on other things. So, for our listeners out there, you may wonder where we've been and what we've been doing.
1: Yeah, we've been we've been doing things. We've been busy, uh, with life. And what have you been up to these past few that has kind of like taken us away from from this beautiful space we call the Hey Playwright Universe?
0: I was dealing with a health issue, and uh, you know, I would not say that I was in denial when the the diagnosis was happening and I was going through it, but I just wasn't sure how to process it. It was a lot to process. And, and I discovered that it was something that is affecting a lot of women, that it was not just me isolated dealing with it. And what happened is um, this is going to be kind of like my PSA for everybody. So that's why I am sharing now in a public forum. And I did share it on my Facebook as well, but, um, I went to get my mammogram, you know, I go every, how often do we do whenever they send me the note, I go. (laughs) (laughs) So I went and as has happened to me in the past, they sometimes will ask for a second one because I have dense breast tissue. And so they will say, well, we couldn't get a clear reading, there was something that looked, we weren't clear, come in for a second. So I did. But then, right after that second one, they, it, the difference was they made me stick around for an ultrasound. And on the ultrasound, they showed me what they were looking at. And it was a cluster of calcifications, and they just weren't sure what it is. So then they ordered a biopsy. And uh, for anyone out there who's had a biopsy recently, I don't know if your experience was like mine, but it was very strange. It, it was laying on a massage table where you put your (laughs) boob through a hole, no comfortable place for your head. No. Yeah. And no massage, no payoff (laughs) at all. But the, uh, but the, the doctor works from underneath of you to do the biopsy. It was really a fascinating experience and one that for people listening, I hope that you don't have to go through, but, uh, I'm grateful for science But they did the biopsy, and then the report came back that it was suspicious for malignancy. But what was fascinating is it wasn't uh, benign, but it also wasn't malignant. So it was somewhere in this very strange gray area, uh, and they wanted to just make sure that there wasn't cancer lurking around somewhere near or in those cells. And so I had a lumpectomy. And uh, everything went really well. You know, as well as it can be when you have to have a procedure like that, they took out that tissue, they checked the margins. um, Everything is clear. So I'm okay. But my message to all of you is please any, any regular checkups that you need to have your annual exams, your colonoscopies, your mammograms, please have them done because uh, early detection is key. And it was for me, it could be for you too. I know other people in my life who are going through more difficult procedures right now. And um, you know, they're, they're, They're working their way through it. But what I'm saying is that the earlier that you can find it, uh, the more chance you have of having to go through less, you know, less, not having to go through the more invasive procedures, things like that. So please, please get, get your checkups. That's a, (laughs) that's my PSA. That's what I've been doing. I've been healing and uh, I'm so grateful to be back and. Mabel, what? Uh, let's hear some good news. Let's hear some exciting news about well, what you've been doing.
1: <laughs> well, I just want to say that good news is that it, that it seems like we're we're good, right, Tori? Like yes, yes. Help. Like so that's that's the best news. That so, is the best news. Yes. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. So, Thank you. Um, so as far as me, I mean, so I went back to school. I had this brilliant idea that I was going to go back to school. So I'm doing that. Um, and so I'm currently uh, pursuing my PhD in education for social justice uh, and wake up every morning um, wondering why and then I read some articles and then understand my why. but it's definitely um, it's definitely been a challenge. To be, to be back in school. I mean, it's been a minute since I was in school, but I am really enjoying it. And that has actually also coincided with all of this other stuff because, you know, I'm in school, but but my playwriting biz continues, right? So, so I'm working on projects. Um, I was in Arizona <laughs> recently. Like I was there for two weeks um, working on uh, the workshop for my play, Lotería Game On, which was a 2021 Reimagine uh, Grant selection, grantee, I was a grantee. Yeah, you were a grantee. I was a, a grant recipient. The grant <laughs> recipient. Um, yes, and so so I got to workshop that play at Teatro Bravo in Arizona, and it was an amazing experience um, working with phenomenal. Uh, talented creatives but I'm back here now <laughs> and I am doing the holiday show for the San Diego Symphony called Noel Noel so if you're in San Diego and you're planning on checking out Noel Noel just know that I wrote the script for that it's it's it's, it's really cool I'm really excited about that aside from that just trying to trying to keep up with homework and there's more is there more what's
0: more what you else? also produced and wrote <gasps>
1: Oh yes,
0: there is uh, more.
1: There's, but wait, there's more. Wait, and I, there's more. I, I oh my gosh, and I'm super proud of this thing that is actually up right now. Um, it is called Ofrendas en Pandemia, a Dia de Muertos anthology, and it is a uh, a series of five short plays uh, about the about. Dia de Muertos in this day and age, in this in this time of the pandemic. Um, and so I am a part of Tuyo Theater, which is a Latinx theater company here in San Diego. And I do a playwriting workshop for emerging playwrights. And um, so those five pieces, uh, four of them are from uh, the those writers and one of them is mine. And um, and it is available on demand. You can stream it on demand. And actually, I guess we can put the, the link in the sh- in the show notes. But um, very proud of it. Uh, it was a it was shot live. Um, so all the actors are are sharing the 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 stage together. No masks. Um, it was a, it was an outdoor shoot. Which presented its own unique challenges, but um, but I I think it I don't know I I'm proud of the piece and it was a fun project it was that was my September and October actually mostly it, that it took a lot it took a lot out of me yes
0: yeah, so they they the the result was beautiful the oh my gosh just the the color the scripts the acting um, really beautifully done so highly recommend.
1: So today's guest, I could, okay, so I'll just have to say this. When I found out that I was a Reimagine 2021 grantee, I was very excited. You know, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so great. It's going to be super fun. When I saw who I was in the company with, like who else, who were the other grantees, I was like, oh my gosh. Gosh! I couldn't believe it. Um, Exceptional talent in this cohort. Um, But one of those individuals is obviously exceptional talent, but also a true master in the field. And our guest today, we have the honor of sharing space with... Jose Cruz Gonzalez. Jose Cruz Gonzalez's plays are Under a Baseball Sky, American Mariachi, Forever Poppy, and Tomas and the Library Lady. Mr. Gonzalez was a 2016 Penn Center USA Literary Award finalist. He is a member of the College of Fellows of the American Theater, John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, and Professor Emeritus at California State University, Los Angeles. Our guest has had such a an impact on theater, on Latinx theater, on theater for young audiences. I mean, I'm I'm intimidated by his presence, but I want to welcome Jose Cruz Gonzalez to the show. Thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you. It's so exciting to be here and to be having a conversation with you.
1: I'm really kind of in shock
0: that we that we get to have this opportunity. I mean, everything that Mabel said is so true. You're, you're a legend. Yeah, yeah you, you really you. are. You're a luminary of the theater, and we are just so uh, filled with gratitude to have you with us today.
2: Well, mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you for your program. And, and uh, you know, I, I can't wait to, to uh, learn more as well about what you're doing and why this is important and, and uh, you know, uh, and your service to the field.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Me. All right. Yeah. So let's let's start from the beginning. I, I'm gonna make this a lot about your your work and how it has impacted me, but I came to theater later on in life. And so I would love for you to talk about how you how you started out because because that was similar to you. Like how did you get to theater?
2: Well, I didn't get to theater really until I was in college. I went to the University of California, San Diego. Uh, And I wasn't even a theater major. I was a U.S. history Chicano um, studies um, major. Uh, And um, while I was there, I learned of a, uh, a class that Dr. Jorge Huerta was teaching. And Dr. Jorge Huerta was the first Chicano to get a Ph.D. in theater in the United States. And he was there teaching his teatro class, his Chicano theater class. And so I took that class. I think it's it all began before that with taking an acting class because I was thinking that maybe I would, uh, after undergraduate school, maybe try being a lawyer or perhaps maybe a historian. I wasn't quite sure, and I was very shy. So I thought, well, I'll take a performance class and see if that helps me in you know, my future. And you know what? It it Taking that acting class just really – uh, move me in in, in in ways. And so I began to take other theater classes and Dr. Huerta's Chicano Theater class was one. And and he was the one that introduced uh, me to Chicano Theater, Latinx Theater. Uh, and it would start this long journey of, you know, dreaming of one day of working with El Teatro Campesino, the Farm Workers Theater, or mm-hmm. Teatro de la Esperanza in San Francisco. And, you know, I'd, I would spend years Cultivating those relationships, Um, and so that's where I first began was was uh, at UC San Diego, working in the Teatro, the student Teatro group that they had there.
1: And so, had you heard of Teatro Campesino prior to your time at UCSD? So
2: I didn't have any uh, uh, you know knowledge yet at that time of Teatro Campesino. It uh, it wasn't until like I said, school. But yes, you know my 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 family were farm workers. Uh, they would follow the crops, you know, from California to Arizona and back and forth, like many, many um, farm working families. And so my brothers and I uh, grew, grew up working with my, our grandparents and our, our mom uh, in the fields. So the the fields were really kind of our daycare. We you know yeah. spent a lot of time there. And mm-hmm. um, I think one of the things that was fantastic about uh, working alongside your your parents or your grandparents is, uh, you know, uh, they'd tell stories to pass the time. Mm-hmm. They, would, uh, you know, sing or play music or something. Or, you know, sing a song or something. And so I think you know, sort of my roots of storytelling really begin there from them. And and of course, uh, uh, when I was introduced to El Teatro Campesino and of course Esperanza. It was the first time for me that I ever saw our community being reflected on stage and that had never happened before.
1: There's only been two times in my experience where I saw big theater productions of our people on stage. And that was first Zoot Suit. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, where the actually I look around and the whole audience is Latinos basically. You know, it's it was it was something that was just like shocking to me. And then the second time was when I saw American Mariachi. And I just Mm -hmm. it, it was a very emotional experience because um and I grew up listening to mariachi music and and just seeing that on stage, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is really happening. And 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 to hear of the enormous success of that production has just been just just a very powerful moving experience for me so you having experienced that early on like how has that how did that influence your work because you know it's it, it theater is not necessarily welcoming to people who are not of a certain a certain um background I suppose
2: <laughs> well I I'm I'm glad that you mentioned Zutsu, because Zutu really was um, um, impactful to me and really sort of helped me to see the potential of the future and on our community in the mainstream theater, um, you know, community. Um, I was, I think in my early 20s when I went to see Zoot Suit up at the Aquarius Theaters in Los Angeles. And, you know, sitting in a a thousand seat theater, I think the Aquarius was packed with, uh, you know, your season subscriber ticket holders, um, with your non you know, theater goers and that alchemy of the, those audiences sitting together. And then, of course, what Luis was doing with that production and those those really amazing artists, uh, you know, moving from English to Spanish to Calo with the style of and pomp, you know, of what that what that piece was about. Uh, I said, this is the future. This, this is this is a, a way of seeing the future and so that really did help shape me to see how that eventually could that that I could go in that direction. Now I didn't start out as a playwright I started out as an actor uh, and and then trained as a director in graduate school and so I my playwriting career really started much later like yours.
1: So how did you get into playwriting? How did that happen?
2: You know I uh, right after graduate school uh, at uh, UC Irvine I was working on my Master of Fine Arts in Directing because uh, uh, after I graduated from um, uh, UC San Diego, I decided I wanted to do theater. So I went to to Arizona State University and got my master's degree in theater there. And so one of the things that that influenced me there was they had a great program of theater for young audiences.
0: Oh, did you work with uh, Johnny... Saldana? Saldana. Or would you, yeah. Mm-hmm. Saldana. I went
2: to, I got my master's there too. So. Oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> teacher, t- teacher of mine. So so I was introduced to the theater for young audiences there. You know, once I finished, I came to Irvine. And while I was Irvine, at Irvine, one of the things that I had decided to do was to begin cultivating Teatro Campesino and Esperanza, because that's where I wanted to go. But I wanted to get advanced training. So maybe I could help, you know, the next sort of level of, of work that maybe could happen. But at the same time, what was happening is, um, I was working at the EOP, the Educational Opportunity Opportunity Program at, at uh, UCI, and uh, Manuel Aguilar, uh, Manuel, I can't remember, Manuel's last name, it'll come to me. Anyway, he he um, was working, he was the director of the EOP program. He says, hey, you know, I just worked at South Coast Repertory, and they were working on a, a project about immigrants and refugees. And, um, you know, you might want to reach out to those folks. I said, okay. So I reached out to them and they said, well, come on down, let's meet. And as a result, I would start to work at South Coast Repertory on just little projects uh, over the next, you know, year or something. And uh, they came to see my work. And so, you know, this sort of entered a whole other world for me. So from going from Arizona, um, you know, a- ASU to SCR, learning about theater for young audiences, and then new play development at South Coast Repertory was like, just completely blew my mind. And then I, and I began to start thinking, well, could we, could we do this with Latino writers? Could, could that happen? And uh, so I, um, at that time, I was anticipating that I'd go to, um, you know, of, hopefully to San Juan Bautista or to San Francisco. Uh, but at the time, Campesino had should have shut its doors down for a while. And the opportunity came at South Coast. They saw some of the work I was doing there as a director and said, we want to nominate you for an, a National Endowment for the Arts Directing Fellowship. And so... You know, I said, cool, I was excited and scared and all that. But we we applied to the the NEA and we got this grant. And only seven were awarded across the country, which then gave me the opportunity right out of grad school to work at South Coast Repertory as an assistant director. Wow. Um, But one of the really cool things was some sort of project that was a culminating project. And that culminating project was the brainchild, my brainchild of – Saying, can we marry new play development with Latino playwrights? And when I pitched it to the artistic directors, you know, their question was, "Are there Latino playwrights?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so we're talking about the eighties, you know, really in the eighties, early eighties, and I sort of said yes, and I crossed my fingers and sort of said yes, and they said, "Okay, let's do it. We'll just try this thing once and see. That's it." and you know that was there's nothing else other than that and we put out a national call and lo and behold we got 109 plays submitted by latino writers you know uh, and we ended up bringing eight of them to south coast and this was the first time a mainstream theater was doing something like this where you had uh, latinx writers and that meant that now we had to find actors and then we had to find directors and we didn't have yet dramaturg. We didn't have a whole lot of that yet. You know, we just had, they were actors, but didn't even know who those actors were. So it began a sort of a, a ball rolling in terms of new play development. And so that first year we ended up bringing in these eight. And actually the, 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 the surprise was that we ended up producing two premieres the following year, Lisa Loomer's Birds. And also, um, Arturo girons then started the program. We said, "Well, let's do it." It got a lot of attention, by the way, around the country, and people came to see it. So, this new play festival actually then began, and so the, the Hispanic Playwrights Project would last for 19 years, and a lot of you know Latinx writers would be coming through those doors. Some really amazing artists. Uh, I, you know, ran the project for I think the first 10, 11 years. And then my colleague, Juliet Carrillo, who now teaches at UC Irvine in the directing program, uh, ran that. Uh, and so, you know, it was a really fantastic time for our community of artists because most of them were isolated, working in different pockets of the country, but finally to bring them together to see that they weren't alone with talented actors and then eventually directors and dramaturgs that, that would evolve out of that. And the real, Beauty, beauty, Of course, is that a number of those artists would also go on to teach at universities around the country. Mm. So wow. you know, never imagined that impact, but it was, you know, a, a real gift um, to be able to be a part of that.
1: I know some of the names that came from the um, Hispanic Playwrights Project. I mean, it's a pretty impressive uh, a group of of alum that doesn't continue on today. So, is there anything today that 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 is where it's a, uh, a nurturing environment on a larger scale?
2: Well, there you know, there's so many new play development programs at, at, across the country. You know, the level of our artistry has continued to, to rise, you know, and those artists are working in mainstream theaters as well as small theaters. And, and I think that's a really beautiful thing and healthy for, for the theater. Um, I know down in San Diego Rep, they have a Latinx New Play Festival, you know, run mm-hmm. by... I'm on, uh, and uh, you know, so so there are a number of number of places, but the, you're right off just the top to say that um, it's really great that that those programs are, are are there because it's what's really important about new play development is giving the opportunity to those writers that are coming up, those emerging playwrights. You know, um, for example, in the TYA world, both you and I are involved with the Reimagine, um, uh, you know, Right Now program where uh, they did a national call for plays, playwrights writing for young audiences, BIPOC artists. And I think 119 playwrights submitted work. And, And, you know, that's huge. And in particular for our field of theater for young audiences, because those stories are much like the regional theaters, you know, uh, we sought to catch up there in the TYA world. And I'm really proud to be a part of it as well as you. I'm sure to be a part of that, that those eight artists that are inaugurating this program to of play development and in a new way of doing it during a pandemic.
1: Yes, absolutely. So because you mentioned that I would love for you to talk um, a little bit about your project and, um, how it was conceived was the pandemic initially a part of it? Because I know that it's worked into the narrative. Um, so if you can if you can talk about that, that would be great.
2: Lovely. So one of the things that that influenced at ASU really would make an impact on, on me uh, in my career because not only working as a, as a as an artist in the regional theater, it was really children that gave me the opportunity to start writing mm-hmm. because I would be teaching classes and you know. The community to low-income children, you know, uh, offering free theater classes, but we didn't really have any material for them. So I began to start writing for them. So it was really mm-hmm. children, that opportunity to write, and um, and and so you know, in in this the, the TYA world, uh, w- when I made the transition of leaving South Coast Repertory, um, I saw um, a uh, uh, an ad in the American theater about New Visions, New Voices, which is a a national new play program for adults writing for children at the Kennedy Center. And so I reached out to uh, a colleague in a professional theater at San Jose Rep about doing a joint thing. Would this be of interest? And they said, sure, let's try it. So we submitted the proposal. And lo and behold, we got picked. (laughs) And that took me to the Kennedy Center. And I knew nothing about the field of TYA. And um, I came with a play called The Highest Heaven. Oh, and, and, yes. Yeah, you, and Tori? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so The Highest Heaven is a it's a coming-of-age story of a little boy uh, named Huracán, whose family himself were you know, repatriated to Mexico during the 1930s. And so it looks at the story of, of our community being sent away and then Returning back to their home, which is the us because that's where they were born and and so it you know it was uh, sort of my entrance into that world, but it was fan- fantastic because I just didn't know this community at all, and I would come to love this community to continue to return back to writing for young audiences because uh, you know uh, at that time again, it was just very bare in terms of trying to tell those stories. Um, you know about our community, much like the regional theaters had done before, where they just didn't have that talent yet, or didn't know how to find that talent, or didn't maybe care to find that talent, right? But they were there. It's just a matter of finding the right materials to to bring them together.
1: So, how did you get to to your reimagine Project? Yes, to thank you. Pia. Okay. Yeah,
2: okay. <laughs> that's a long long way of getting to Pia's wondrous adventures in Taxlandia. That's the title of the, the piece I'm working on. And it originally was a, a different play. I was working with a company in Rancho Cucamonga, uh, led by uh, Medea Hepner, And um, we were going to do actually mariachi tales. That's what we were going to work on uh, for, for young people. And then the pandemic hit and the city who owns the theater, runs the theater, shut it down. So Maria was out of a, uh, you know, all the whole staff was gone. And, and I was going to be working with a director named Robert Castro and, and Murray. That's my dramaturg, Maria. And uh, they said, do you want to still work on this? I said, yeah, I'd like to keep working on it. So we, we kept working on it. And then the reimagined grant came and I decided I'm going to apply for that because this will give us the development time if we're fortunate enough to get it. And we got it. You know, and so um we've been continuing the work on it. We were we we started uh in the fall uh and Robert teaches at UC San Diego. So boy, another sort of thread and another connective thread there, uh, who really has the position of my former professor, Dr. Jorge Huerta, who runs a lot he runs the Latinx uh theater program there with the students and undergraduates and graduates. And um, he said, you know, we have, I have this opportunity. I have eight design students, MFA design students, and they need a project. Do you want to look at exploring Pia, the world of Pia with these students? And so I said, let's do it. So in the fall, we, we went and gave them prompts, visual prompts to to explore what this world could be, because it's a world uh, that, we're, we're trying to look at um, Mesoamerican creation myths, but we're also trying to pair it with sort of a Chicano Latinx sensibility of today and mash them up. And, you know, so it's a mashup of musical theater, puppetry, to- toy theater, uh, graphic novel. And so that's what we were exploring with all these different storytelling tools and see how we could use them. And so, um, we're so we, we learned a lot from that, and, and we, we uh, are now in the next phase of the project where we're uh, we brought in four professional actors to help read the play, but then we're, we're, we're you know, and I can hear it and make changes, but then we're going to drop into this coming week actually, we're going to be working with seventh graders because I wanted to. I'll tell you, the best dramaturgs are children.
0: Yes, I will agree with you
2: 100%. we are going to drop into a seventh grade class and have read one of the episodes. So, Pia's seven episodes of story, and ultimately, will culminate in a play. But the way we're seeing it in this digital age during the pandemic is we can drop into this digital world and tell stories that way. And so, we're working with seventh graders uh, on Tuesday. And then, uh, this later in the week, we'll be working with um, uh, third graders, and then eventually fifth grade class. So different classes, different places around you know California. And the other component is that we've reached out to experts, we wanted experts in the field to also give us feedback on the work. And so, for example, there's a, a scholar who's I think in the Divinity School at Harvard named David Carrasco. And David is a Mesoamerican scholar. So David is going to, you know, read the play, and we're going to have this. What do you think? What what's wrong? What's right? Right? You know, mm-hmm. we also have a a, a PhD scholar, a PhD candidate at UC Santa Barbara, who Etika is her name, and she's working with children and trauma, in particular Latinx children. You know, because one of the parts of the story is about how do children, how do how our children. Um, you know, how have they been coping with the pandemic and in terms of family and in terms of school and all those things, and we wanted to look at that. And so our third expert that we're looking to identify is um, uh, we want a a youth activist uh, in terms of environmental justice Hmm. because the play is touching on the themes of trauma, um, uh, you know, uh, the environment, And, um, you know, uh, really, you know, trying to trying to, uh, um, you know, negotiate the sort of the challenge that what what we've been going through, young people in particular, uh, this past year and a half.
1: Because of the pandemic, it became a digital um, piece, right? Is this your first time working in like creating for that for that medium?
2: No, you know, I've mixed around a lot as a storyteller. I've, I've learned to to experiment. Um, you know, doing puppetry work, shadow theater work. Um, uh, I've done you know multimedia work, uh, but this time what I wanted to do is to bring all those elements together, and you know, see how we could push the form. The story. So you're a
0: puppeteer as well.
2: Well. I'm not a puppeteer, but I write for puppets and I've worked with puppeteers and I've, you know, and I love working with puppeteers and I have a number of plays that are puppet plays uh, that we've done. And and so, um, you know, it's just pulling those different experiences and saying, okay, let's mash this up, throw it in there and see what we can do with a team of artists, really creative people and reimagine how we might tell a new creation myth set for the 21st century.
1: It just uh, sounds like it's going to be visually stunning. Like
2: it's been, it's been really fun because I think one of the things um, that's freed me, uh, you know, in in the drafts that I'm working on, is I can tell it as a I can tell it as a film if I want, but it also reads as a book. It reads as a graphic novel. It can read as an audio. You know, could like a like a podcast. You just hear the storyteller telling stage directions, but you know, it cuts to here. There's this image here. There's the, and so you know, and ultimately we'll have to arrive back into a room with all the creatives to begin to really unpack. How does what is that? How does that work in a three dimensional world? Oh for yeah, a live audience.
0: And then, how do you imagine getting it out? to the community, to the community that, that you're really writing for, right? Yeah.
2: yeah. So we the, 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 the plan is that eventually we want to create these episodes that we can actually drop into classrooms prior oh, okay. to the children coming so they can actually see it in, in that form, uh, which would be a mashup of graphic novel, of film puppetry, you know, Toy theater, but then when they come to the st- when they actually come to the stage, they'll know the story, they'll know the world. But now they're going to have a different experience in a th- live wow. that you know will just be sensory. I mean, in just so many ways that that we don't know yet what that technology can give us.
0: Oh. <laughs> Yeah, no, it it sounds it does sound incredible. I'm just going to echo what Mabel said. I know Mabel had and I were talking about this before we all logged on about mariachi music and that you learned to play, is that right? So did you learn to play before you started writing the play or how did they inform each other? How did that come about?
2: That's a great question. That's- so, you know, I was a professor at California State University for 30 years. I retired about two years ago. And in my year 20, I saw a mariachi uh, group playing on campus. And uh, afterwards, I discovered that it was a student group. It was the first, first time that was happening there, but it, it actually had its roots back in the 60s as one of the first places where mariachi was taught in a university. And so I approached the, uh, the musical director, the teacher, Who's a white Jewish woman from Rochester, New York, who became mariachi? <laughs> uh, speaks better Spanish than I do, and I I asked uh, Cindy Flores, is her name for Flores. Uh, is it possible that if I could take this class? I said, I really don't have any musical talent or you know experience, but could I try? She said, Sure, come take it. So I knew nothing about mariachi. I don't, you know, when they would say, Okay, we're going to start on the downbeat, and I'd go, Excuse me. What's a downbeat? <laughs> you know, I was the nerd, like, you know, and I had two left hands. I just couldn't get anything down. But I spent 10 years playing as a student in that mariachi group and students would come and go and, you know, I would learn from them. And, and of course, then I asked maestra if I could go study with other mariachis to, to learn, to get better. You know, I didn't see myself as becoming a professional or anything like that. But I was fascinated by the music. It was something that I'd grown up with, with my family, not, not, I didn't have family musicians or anything, but you know, the records, that kind of thing. And, uh, so I started on the guitar, went to the viduela, which is a smaller, uh, higher pitched uh, guitar. And then the guitar on the bass. And so I, and as long as, as I went through these, the journey of, um, learning the instruments, I'd hear stories of the mariachis, both men and women, because the class was made up of both men and women. And back in the day, in the 70s and earlier before that, mariachi music was, um, you know, passed on from father to son, not father to daughter. And that changed in the 1970s when young women began around this country, you know, to say, we want to play it. And so it was an act of resistance in a way, whether they knew that or not. Uh, and I found that to be really compelling as a story. And so the other part of the story for me was meeting uh, Laura Sabrino Cano. She was a woman who grew up in my little hometown up on the central coast of California. She was six-foot-tall violinist, classically trained violinist, who she didn't speak spanish but she took this this class at uc santa cruz and it was mariachi and she fell in love with it and she would eventually become one of the ne- pioneers that would train the next generation of both men and women mariachi and and also you know one of the one of the early pioneers of playing with men because those those young women that actually started playing with men you know those guys were not going to have it and they had to outplay these guys you know, outperform them, and they did. And it would eventually earn their respect. And so out of all that, you know, uh, the last component was this young woman, um, uh, Stacy Lopez, who's a really amazing viduela player. She she was my partner, because she played viduela, I played guitaron, And, you know, I have stage fright. I'm a theater person, I have stage fright. So, you know, I get on stage, <laughs> I get, what the hell am I playing, you know? And, uh, <laughs> She was always there keeping me like, "Okay, profe, you got to do this. It's, you know, it's this, it's do, go to do, go to so. You know, you know, whatever it was, she was just keeping me. But she told me one day she was on a gig as a professional. And they went to perform, I I don't know if it was a house or wherever, but there's this little old lady there in front that they were singing to. And she only wanted one song. And for over an hour, they played that one song. And she would just light up and sing along. And I, I began to think about music as memory, you know, because in the mariachi world, you know, um, for an immigrant community, mariachi is really important because it's, it's a connective tissue to the past, to the, to the country, to your ancestors. Um, and uh, mariachi is there at the beginning, when you're, when you're born, you know, your birthdays, uh, your baptisms, they're there when you get married, your quinceaneras, and they're there when you die. So it's just like a soundtrack to your life. And as I began to think about it, I thought, I really would love to try to see without, te- being, without teaching, but try to share to an audience why this music is so special to, the, to this community Uh, as opposed to what we see in mainstream media, which is, oh, yeah, it's the guys with the funny suits and hats and they come up to your table and, you know, they play loud and you you can't have a conversation. And I wanted to flip that on his head and try for both a non-Latino and Latino audience to show why this is so uh, treasured. And so all those pieces then came into... Uh, just developing America Mariachi. When I pitched the idea to the Denver Theater Center, who commissioned it, they said, okay, let's do it. And so the journey began with us um, at the Colorado New Play Summit in 2016. Um, before that, I had to try to find actors who could sing or play <laughs> music. You're, you're talking about purple threats, which is rare. Mm-hmm. And so I called up my director friends and I invited these actors that they recommended or the people that I knew, having been at South Coast for a number of years. So I knew that at that time, the Latino talents, not all of them, but, you know, I was open to trying to learn who's there. Invited them and and, uh, to to a small theater in Los Angeles and I brought food, coffee, scripts, everything. And we just sat down and read and heard them. And out of that, three, those three readings, I would eventually gather enough of these artists and thank God for Denver's resources. And 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 they were able to bring my whole team of artists from Los Angeles. Uh, one of the gifts was to have um, uh, Daniel Valdez, uh, Luis Valdez's brother, you know, from the Teatro Campesino and Zutzu. I mean, Daniel is an, an accomplished musician, one of the early Chicano pioneers of you know, music, uh, recorded music here in the U.S. in terms of uh, music from the 70s is I Am Mestizo. Is a, Mestizo is a really amazing album. So early, you know, in terms of recording and mainstream. Vivi um, uh who is... Also from my, my hometown, from that area, and she's also a mari- I was saying mariachi. And so we had all these different sorts of threads connecting. So we went to Denver. Denver gave us a two-week workshop through the Colorado New Play Summit, which is an amazing new play development program. And they give you the time to develop it over the course of two weeks. So at the end of the first week, you do a, a reading for, you know, the uh, patrons at Love there in Denver – new work. And then the final weekend is the, uh, the industry uh, comes, you know, all the other theaters to see what's there. And it, it just, it resonated with the audience. Denver, uh, Denver said, we want to continue to support it. We're going to give you more time. And so we would then spend another year developing it in Los Angeles, uh, you know, uh, with artists and, and, you know, it's a big, big show because you've got I think 14 performers on stage you know and and probably the amount the same amount backstage with crew in front of uh you know people calling the show all that is it's a huge show. so it's a, it's a play with music but it's it it, it requires musical you know uh, the the support of a musical theater because you're talking about instruments and all the things that have to come with that uh and then you know ultimately to to um, find the right artists. we had to go to Los Angeles and, and to, to New York to search for them.
0: Well, and it sounds like well, I, I saw the production at, at The Old Globe here in San Diego, which was just incredibly moving, moving and beautiful. And uh, music is a character. Yes, in that play. So yeah, finding finding that level of talent would be would be critical. Um, and there's a local uh, actress that Mabel and I know and had worked with in one of the programs, um, Jennifer Parathis, who who was in that yeah. production. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. She she was just stunning. Yeah, she that role she made it sing. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and sung. I remember, I remember um, when I like having a moment as I was watching the show, thinking about whoa. This was a Herculean effort to cast, I bet, because oh my gosh. because all of the the talents required to fulfill these roles. Uh, that's yeah. I mean, yeah. It was uh, my mind was blown. Yeah, a little
0: bit watching. <laughs> yeah, and, and think thinking about all of that, learning to play the music because even if you play guitar, it's a different it's a different instrument, yeah. right? So. Yeah
2: yes yeah I think the most important thing that we realized when we began and you know now America Mariachi's continued in, in other professional theaters mm-hmm. around the country mm-hmm. it's been really wonderful to see these artists that have been there waiting for this story to come and who are musical who can you know who can or play or can act or can do all three of these things it's been really wonderful to see each generation of a new, new AM family. One of the artists uh, titled it Fam- Familiachi. Like fami- <laughs> Familiachi. And um, it's been really fantastic to actually see for, for many of these artists. It's the first time that they've actually been in uh, a professional theater with la- other Latinx artists. Mm. That has been actually really rewarding for many of them and empowering for them. Um, but coming back to your, you know, your this this thought of like how did how do you prepare these people? It took us a while to figure out. It took us a while to go, okay, we've cast these people; they're in different parts of the country. How do we prepare them to be successful mm-hmm. when they come here, having to play, you know, that kind of thing? And so we began to think through that with each production over time. We've learned this is these are the things that we need to have them be prepared to do when they come, and so we can't assume they're going to do that themselves we need to support them and the interesting alchemy that's happened is when the mariachis first came um when we were working work that develop producing uh, um, american mariachi you know they come in and okay we're going to put them in now and, and you know and, and the actors have been rehearsing and everything and the mariachis just would stand there and just like there were audience members laughing and just going, oh, you know, <laughs> wait a second, wait a minute, guys, you guys know more in the world of this play. And so it was fascinating, the alchemy of that the mariachis would have to learn to become actors. The actors would have to learn to become mariachis and the two would help each other find, find those common, that the common roads that they needed. It really was fascinating. And then as time would grow on, you would see these mariachis suddenly emote or, Take that line and just own it for an audience, you know. So it was been and, and constantly we've seen that o- over time. We also what was really important to us was, uh, you know, how do you reach out to an audience if you're producing a play and you've not really reached out to an audience? This particular this audience, a new audience. What do you what, what do you need to consider? And so in the uh, the opening of the script, there is a note to the creatives that I've written out that talks about you know, the heritage of mariachi and why it's important and why it's important we get it right. It was always important to us that if a mariachi, professional mariachi, were ever to see this show, they could say they did it right. Mm. We were one time teching, uh at Denver one night, my musical director Cindy and I were, you know, after two hours of notes, we're just now sort of like, ready to go to sleep, you know, and I mean, you know, it would have been like 12, 12 o'clock, I don't know, 11 o'clock. And, you know, she was going to go to her place, I was going to go to place, my place. And she said, I said, you know, did you watch Coco? She says, oh, yeah. She says, I love that film. It was, I loved it. And I said, yeah, me too. I said, but they got one thing wrong. She said, yeah, I know. She said, they played the D with the wrong fingers. So in Mariachi, <laughs> uh, you, uh you know, they they play with uh, they they play the D chord in a different way than the t- sort of traditional D chord is played by most because in Mariachi a lot of it is about economy of motion because you're often playing some really fast songs and these are short shortcuts to 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 move. And so we and Cindy's husband, uh Pedro Flores is a world class uh Miduela player. He's played with the best mariachis. And so when he came to see it, he said, yeah, you guys got it right. So (laughs) that was an affirmation. Yeah, we did it right. We did it right.
1: Oh, my goodness. That's so incredible.
0: Okay. So here's the asking for a friend. If you could add another face to Mount Rushmore, who would it be and why?
2: Well, if it's a politician, Obama. (laughs) 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 Um, But if it was somebody who I adore and love would be my mom. Mm. She, she was a young, young woman, widowed mother at 29, raising four little boys. And she, she did well by, by us for, you know, she took care of business.
0: Beautifully said. Um, thank you. And now we'll transition into a writing prompt.
2: Yeah. Sure. So one of the writing exercises uh, is short, it's quick. Uh, and I'm sure other writers have said it, um, but uh, I would say, just uh, I'll give you two examples and then you can decide which one you wanna, but one of the writing exercises is to write three, five, even 10 most memorable things in your life, right? Writing is about discovering and then there's layers to peel back before you actually find gold. The other um, exercise I've done before in the past is to, to, to tell a one-minute story, but don't type it. Just grab your cell phone, hit record, and make up a story in one minute. Then uh, transcribe it onto your computer, and then see how it changes as you begin to deep, you know, explore it. And see where that might take you. Wow. You know, the, the thing to me, I always just tell people is that in the plays are already inside you. It's just a matter of you finding them to come out.
0: Yes. I, I was watching an interview with you. Um, you and, oh gosh, what was his name? David? David Ivers. Ivers. I- yeah. For the South Coast rep. One mm-hmm. from February of this year. And you were talking about this bank depositive ideas that you have. And that really stuck with me. I went, Oh yeah, I have a, a card file and now I do it on my phone. You know, I keep notes, but I, I love that because those are, yeah, all those ideas they're in you. And, and, uh, it was interesting hearing about your discipline too, of how, kind of what your routine is as a writer and how important that is, um, to, to have that, but also to have that bank of ideas that you can pull from at any time, you know, if you feel stuck or whatever.
1: So Jose, five, yeah. day, or, five or seven days a week, you wake up early and write, like the pretty cup of much, coffee in seven days a week? Much.
2: I mean, there sometimes on Sundays, I go, I don't feel like it, you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and you know, it just, it calls to me, I, you know, when I first started out writing, you know, it wasn't, it's a muscle that you have to develop. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't run a marathon the first time out. Uh, And the thing is, is you just kind of have to keep, you know, inviting yourself to come back. And maybe it starts with a minute. Maybe it starts with two minutes. You know, those two, three minutes become 10 minutes. Then later they become 20 minutes. And, you know, suddenly you're in the zone running that marathon. And it could be five miles. It could be just a mile. It could be 20 miles. Um, And, you know, you have to... Be disciplined because most of the time, everything's going to stop you from trying to be creative. You have housework, you got jobs, you've got family. But in pockets of time, you can be as creative.
0: Wow. I love love that, inviting yourself to come back. It's always an invitation, right?
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's always an invitation. Oh, my goodness. What a wonderful, wonderful conversation! I feel like we could we could go on for for many more hours. So hopefully, you'll join us again, and um, and we can talk more about. There's so much to your career, and I'm sure, and 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 what's to come too. What's to come? So um, we will definitely be watching for that. Speaking of what's to come, is there anything
0: that you would like to let people know about? Anything you have coming up?
2: Well. You know, I, I'm I'm working on a number of commissions, uh, and and I'm just sort of waiting for for them sort of have the next stage of their thing. Everything has been on put on hold with the pandemic, and so um, you know I hope uh, that uh, eventually, uh, under baseball sky, will see life at the globe.
1: Yeah, that's right. <sighs> see, we didn't even talk about under baseball sky, and that's like that's our hood. <laughs> yeah Ah. If, okay so yes yeah we know so, I, I had a list i'm gonna say when when <laughs> when that comes to the globe um we'll yeah to, no for sure for sure Putting oh, you know, it would universe, wonderful yeah 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 it's it's uh, no it
0: will the you know slowly but surely the world is opening back up and even though as, as, I've, as I've said to you before, Mabella, we take a step forward, we take a few steps back. But I, I feel like progress is being made. So I am very hopeful that I will be sitting in a seat at the Old Globe watching Under the Baseball Sky.
2: I hope we'll have a chance to have some coffee or something and just oh, again be... and learn more about each of you as well. That
1: That's would so- be lovely. So thank you so much, Jose, for joining us today. And thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: Okay. Adios. Thank Adios. you. Adios, gracias. Thank you. Wow. Jose for the career and the impact that he has had on American theater and Latinx theater and everything he has done. He is so incredibly humble with all of that. I mean, what a lovely human being.
1: Totally. I just I feel so validated hearing his story and and he had such an impact. His work has had such an impact on, on Latinx theater and, and also my own personal experience. I mean, you know, just seeing what what's out there, what can be done and, and how successful American Mariachi has been. And like showing people like, hey, um, there are stories out there. It's not just one type of story that we need to hear or one, one dominant ideology that we need to hear from on the stage, you know. So, um, yeah. Well, and I love in American Mariachi that
0: it is told from the perspective of the women of that movement. And I, I really enjoyed hearing the stories, too, about how the actors and the mariachis learned from each other during the rehearsal process. And how they started to sh- really create this family and blend together and share and their lived experiences. And um, I mean, w- for me personally, when I saw it at the Old Globe, that's, I really felt that bond on the stage. It translated to me in the audience. I felt that. Yeah. Mm hmm.
1: And I was just like, how did they cast this? <laughs> <laughs> all that's, right. That's all I kept thinking. I was like, how? Who? What? Who did this? This is yeah, amazing
0: that it truly is a monumental feat. Well, just yeah. like he was saying, it, you had to have actors who could sing and play, and play. instruments and and that they had to learn how to play mariachi, which as we learned during the course of the interview is very different. Those instruments are very different. Yeah. So
1: I I will say that, um, that another, another layer of inspiration is that Jose learned to play mariachi later on in life, which gives me hope because, (laughs) because then I was thinking like, Oh Maybe I'll start playing mighty. I mean, I would, I have no zero, you know, we've talked about this. I just can't, I have, I have instruments and they are collecting dust as we speak. Um, but wouldn't that be something?
0: You can do it. Si se puede. Si se puede. (laughs) I say in between, uh, you know, your, your, theater work, your, and your PhD program, you should learn how to play mariachi.
1: I, maybe that'll be like, that's my self-care.
0: That's right.
1: That's <laughs> my self-care.
0: as my self-care. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Wonderful. Well, wow. I, I feel incredibly inspired. And thank you to Jose Cruz Gonzalez for sharing this time with us. And thank you, everyone. Uh, we are getting back into the swing of things. Yes. So we are um, starting to interview more guests. And we are excited to bring bring more programming to you. Oh,
1: and if you like what you heard today, feel free to share, like,
0: subscribe, and rate us. And it does make a difference. So if you are still listening at this point, you haven't shut off the podcast. You're like, oh, they're just telling you. Know,
1: We're, we want to know why. So why if, have you you're, still
0: here? if you're still listening, Please, right now, if you're if you're listening on Apple Podcast, go and give us a five star rating. It does make a difference. It does. It helps to bump us up so that people.
1: But what if people feel that we're not a five star rating? We just... <laughs> they're and, like they're more like don't... a two and a half. <laughs> mm, no, give, give a five star rating why. to Jose always, Gonzalez. That's right. right. Yeah, Jose, forget about us. But the... well,
0: yeah, it's really about what we're sharing on the show. Are you finding it of value? You just got to hear some fabulous um, stories and inspirational. um, A lot of wisdom there. Wisdom. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. Until next time. Until
1: next time.
0: Check out those writing exercises. You can find those in our show notes.
1: Yes. Do the one minute story. That's so cool. I'm going to do that. Yeah. All right, everybody. Until next time.
0: Adios.